so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Hey, the New York Kristen. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 83 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where awesome ladies tell you all the awful, not awesome things in Hollywood. But you know what? We talk about awesome stuff too. <laughs> Because the world isn't all good or bad. It's not a binary, right? Well, I'm Karen Peterson, and with me, as always, is Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. And that's it. It's the two of us today. Because Kristen Lopez got swallowed up in the earthquake last night. <laughs> and, um, yeah, no, actually, that's not what happened at all. She has opted to take the month of July off to come back burnout which we all understand and we all experience from time to time and you know you just gotta take care of yourself and do what's best for you yes so we wish you well Kristen. we miss you and we will talk to you soon very soon and we're also gonna talk um, shit about you because you can't do anything about it so of course we are like i mean that's just the rules so yeah how are you lauren i'm good i'm a little tired but i'm good it's hot as fuck here in new york so Define hot as fuck in New York. It's in the 90s, plus uh, the fact of the city, which makes it more like 100, plus the fact of humidity, which is just incredibly unpleasant. So yeah. it's warm. It's That's hot as fuck. Yes. <laughs> I was in Union Square Station yesterday, and it was like, I think Union Square is usually about 10 to 20 degrees hotter than it is on the surface. So it was like 114 degrees in the station. That was fun. Having a great time. Gross. <laughs> I think yesterday my high here was like 85. It was perfect. It was beautiful. Sorry. You, see, yes, we have earthquakes, but we also have wonderful weather. So <laughs> that's why people live here. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Well, before we jump into our um, really good stuff that we've got to talk about today... Let's just quickly remind the folks, we do have a promotion going on right now, or a contest, our What's in the Bag contest. So jump onto Twitter and find our tweets. We have many tweets about it. And by the time you listen to this, there will be another one. So just find that, retweet it, and tell us what you think is in the bag, and you could win it. This contest is going to the end of August. What do you think is in the bag? Is it Kristen Lopez? Is it... My dignity. It could be a lot of things. <laughs> Lauren, what do you think is in the bag? I, I think it's Kristen. I think that this whole thing has been an elaborate, you know, way of putting herself in the bag. You could win your very own Kristen Lopez. <laughs> so join us. It's fun. All the kids are doing it. Uh, all right. So let's let's just jump right in. We've had some big stuff this week. You know what? I'm going to get the, the garbage out of the way first, just because I like to have that off our plates. So Kevin Spacey was, so he's facing criminal charges in, I think it's Nantucket, for 
um, inappropriately groping someone who did not want him to, and so he's got like three counts against him, and that is supposed to go to trial this fall. However, the victim in that criminal case also has a lawsuit going had a lawsuit going on, and he has now dropped the lawsuit. And so we don't know exactly why, because it doesn't say. He hasn't stated the reasons. Um, usually in cases like this, it means a settlement has been agreed upon, and those are generally undisclosed. Um, but we don't know. And we also don't know what this means for that particular criminal case. He is still under investigation in Los Angeles and in England for things that happened there. Um, but we don't know exactly if this still means he's going on trial here in the fall or if that's going to end up getting dropped too. Because if this guy drops his lawsuit, will he be willing to testify? We don't know. Thoughts, Lauren? Yeah, I mean, I was hoping that we were actually going to manage to get through this week without having any garbage people to talk about, and I mean, it, I know at least we don't have anyone Rude. new. It's still Kevin Spacey, you know. So this, and which has been going on for a while, but yeah, I mean, you never know with these kinds of things what is actually going on. It sounds like some people are saying that it's you know they there was a settlement and they kind of worked that out. Uh, the, this, I mean, this is always one of the problems when it comes to actually the legal side of cases like this, where you're not just talking about the, the public response to to, case, to Spacey's behavior and to some of the things that he did and has been accused of doing. Um, you're also talking about the legal ramifications of that, and that gets as a much thornier and much more difficult area. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, sexual assault is difficult to prosecute criminally. Um, civil suits are very often the way that people go, and then you begin to get into issues of how long you want the suit to go on, whether or not the person is willing to just take money and leave it behind them, all of that shit, and it gets more and more complicated, and and there's this tendency then to be like, oh, he dropped the case, therefore it didn't actually happen, uh, or it was you know consensual, or this guy was just trying to get money out of him, or something like that. And you don't. And the thing is, we don't know because this is all legal stuff. This isn't. Um, this isn't about what actually happened per se. It's about what people are willing to settle for, and that's always a problem. So now we're gonna have. I'm certain that now we're gonna have the conversation. Just like, well, maybe they were all just lying. Well, maybe you know, Spacey didn't actually do anything. Maybe this was just like uh, people keep on using terms like this was a date gone wrong. Um, and stuff like that, or, or bad sex. And it, it's, it gets ugly when it gets complicated, and it's always complicated. I don't think it's ever not been complicated. So this is disappointing, but we'll see what happens with the criminal cases. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that people need to not look at this and go, oh, well, clearly it, it was nothing, or clearly it was a misunderstanding, or clearly he was just out for money, because that there's nothing clear about any of that. And... And so I, th I think that we just have to be really cautious not to jump to those conclusions. I mean, I usually don't jump to those conclusions, but I know a lot of people do. We've seen it just in the last week or yeah. two with people making claims that, well, if they're not, you know, convicted in court, then we can't consider them guilty. Uh, that's just a legal, that's <laughs> just a legal standard. Well, and <laughs> we can still... Sorry. No, no. I was, I was going to say the whole, the whole thing with sexual assault is that usually pe other people don't usually observe it, right? That's what it's right. usually two people that are involved in it. It's the person being assaulted and the person doing the assaulting. So 
so yes, it, it is almost always two people saying two different things. And you have to make a choice. And, and in terms of public figures and, and, uh, or friends or anything, you have to make a choice about yourself, about whether or not you believe the victim, the person who says that they were assaulted, or the person who did the assaulting. And the default should be believing the victim. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because most people, most perpetrators, you're not going to stand in open court and say, yep, I raped her. That was rape. And I bragged about it on this video. And then the judge gives them a later sentence <laughs> for it. Uh, that happened this week, too. That so was that, That's a fair trial, right? <laughs> that's like, but that's, ju- that is, that's legal justice. Right, yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's, that's, people yeah. want to say that. And it's like, okay, you know, I mean... The Brock Turner case here in, in California a couple of years ago. There's lots of examples of that too. So it's like you can't just point to the justice system, the quote unquote justice system, and say, well, whatever they decide is what we go along with because so often people get off on technicalities or they get lighter sentences by sympathetic mm-hmm. judges or they the extreme opposite happens and they get really insanely tough sentences for something that is relatively minor so the justice system isn't isn't the answer to everything it does help with some things but that can't be we can't lean on that all the time as the standard so yeah uh let's see speaking of garbage people saying garbage things on the internet um <laughs> we had really exciting news this week. I was actually very excited after I reread the headline a couple of times and got my head straight about what was happening cuz I was very confused why Halle Berry was playing the Little Mermaid and then I realized no, it's Halle. I Bailey. still read it like that. <laughs> it's hard not to. No, it's so no. hard not to. But <laughs> I mean, that would have been an interesting choice. I I could have gone along with that. But um Yeah, so Halle Bailey, who is a 19-year-old singer, and she's been on TV. She actually is currently on the show Grownish. She has been cast to play Ariel in the live-action version of The Little Mermaid for Disney, which is being directed by Rob Marshall. And earlier in the week, we got news that um, Melissa McCarthy was in talks to play Ursula the Sea Witch, and Aquafina would be playing Scuttle, and Jacob Tremblay would be uh, playing Flounder. Now, I'm guessing so- I'm guessing this is going to be something of a hybrid where it's not fully live action. Um, probably Tremblay and Aquafina they'll be doing voices, but um, but Halle Bailey and Melissa McCarthy probably will be showing their faces on screen, and it's very exciting. One of the reasons it's exciting is because they didn't just find a redhead or a girl who could pull off red hair and pale white skin. They went with Halle Bailey, who is black. And this is very, very big news. Because a lot of people were instantly, and I knew as soon as I read it, as soon as I saw the article, I was like, oh, the racists are going to come out in force. And oh man, they sure did. (laughs) Lauren, what were your initial thoughts when you saw this casting news? I mean, I, I, I think I'm probably much the same as you. That as, I mean, the, the Disney live action stuff is not made for me. This is not something that I particularly care about or I'm interested in. That being said, casting uh, a black teenager to play what in the original animated film was a, a white 
um, character is fantastic. It's it's a really interesting idea. It's actually like, hey, you know, we're gonna do we're gonna do something that isn't just a totally straightforward, you know, quote live action remake of an animated film. Um, we're actually going to get to see something that is different and that actually has different ramifications uh, on screen. Because if you've got, because people were criticizing the casting of Melissa McCarthy as Ursula, but when you have a black actress playing Ariel, I think you've got a really interesting dynamic going on there because you've got a white woman stealing a black girl's voice. And that is already like an interesting element to the film. Um, and that, like, and who knows how how exactly they're going to deal with all of it, or or how this film is going to differ from the animated version. Um, but it gives another layer to it, and that immediately intrigues me more than just you know uh, everybody doing voices for the Lion King, um, or something like that. But yeah, of course, you're know, like, oh, the racists are going to come out. The racists are going to have something to say about it. I guess that some of the racist responses were actually proven to be bots, mm -hmm. um, which is a good thing. But they also fostered this climate where people were being like, yeah, how dare, how dare they, how dare they cast a black girl to play a mermaid? Right. Like, like a mermaid. <laughs> the, these I, I hate to say it. These are these people aren't real. Like mermaids are not real. There are not talking seagulls. Like what? this does not exist. So if your major stumbling point is, oh no, that's just unbelievable that she would have darker skin, then you're definitely a racist. It doesn't fit my worldview that I've had since I was four. Like oh my gosh, yeah, that's a good thing. It shouldn't. Uh, one of my favorite responses was someone's going to be, people are going to be really disappointed when they find out Ursula's not gray. <laughs> 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 I thought that was pretty good. Because, yeah, I mean, we're in an age which I'm glad we're finally here or at least, like, have arrived there and there's still a long way to go. It's not, you know, we haven't fixed diversity, <laughs> but I'm glad <laughs> seen as a, you know, pale redhead you can cast an Asian American actress to play a seagull. Like, I mean, this is, this is fine. And this is good. We need to see on screen. We need to see representation. And there's this idea that, oh, well, because that character has always been white means they always should be. That's so ridiculous. And I'm so tired of, of fighting with people over that mindset. You know, it's, it's just so frustrating and um, there was actually a, a thread that I came across. This is Ashley Burnell at the underscore movie Oracle. And she said, um, people freaking out about a black Ariel or saying mermaids can't be people of color. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Gabriella? Gabriella was a character who appeared in the Little Mermaid TV series, which by the way was on Disney in like the 90s. She was Latina and was also deaf-mute. She had an octopus friend who translated for her. And I never watched that show, but so I didn't know anything about that character, but I was just like, man, see? Mermaids can be any race. They can be in the end. Disney's been doing this for a long time, so that's awesome. Plus, you know, you've got diversity in there, too. So maybe this version will have some of that as well. It'd be great to see lots of representation across the board. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, it, it would be, and I think this does like open up the question of okay, who's who's going to play some of Ariel's sisters? Who's going to, you know, how how is this cast actually going to fall out? And and I I mean, you know, Dis, Disney is marketing. Disney is trying to sell something, which is what every major studio does. And uh, but it's good that in some ways I I like the fact seeing these major studios being like we're selling diversity because diversity is what sells. That's what they're perceiving. Um, they're not perceiving it as being like we have to constantly cast white people um, as in the major roles because that's what's going to sell. It's like no diversity is going to sell, so that's what we're going to try for. Uh, and that's that's in a certain sense that's nice to see. That says that the culture is moving mm-hmm. in the correct direction. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm just really bored with seeing white people on screen. I I, I see white people too much. <laughs> like, uh, it's nice to actually see a lot of different people represented and to know that I'm not a big fan of the little mermaid. The little mermaid was kind of freaked me out when I was a kid. It was not my favorite movie. Uh, but I know that a lot of girls my age were, and they were really into it. And it's good to see that, you know, finally Disney is moving in the direction where, little black girls are going to get to see the little mermaid and they're going to get to see themselves in that. And that's incredibly important. Uh, it's just as important as be, as anyone being able to see themselves on screen. So that's what we need. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me of another tweet I saw. And unfortunately I don't have it in front of me, so I can't properly cite the author, but she was talking about how being a kid in the eighties and being a very pale redhead she was very excited to see Ariel on screen and and it was the first character that she remembered that you know had that vivid red hair and she felt like wow this character looks like me and then she goes on to because at first I'm reading this going oh here we go and then she goes on to say how excited she is that black girls are going to have that same opportunity and I thought that was awesome you know because it's so true earlier this week too I saw I was watching something I don't even remember what it was but I was watching a video or something on the news and they were talking to actors it was like people that are breaking into the business people who do a lot of character work talking about going on auditions and seeing casting calls and how the something you said just reminded me of this learn but they're they're talking several different people were saying that now it used to be very specific we're looking for a Latina woman age 22 to 28, you know, and now it's like they're not seeing race listed. They're not even seeing gender listed. A lot of times it's not age. It's just, here's this character show up to the audition. And so it's, it's, that actually gave me a lot of hope too. It's nice to see that Hollywood's finally moving in this direction where they're just, they want to see who's best for the role without pigeonholing what this character is supposed to look like or sound like or, or feel like, you know? I think it's great. Yeah. And that that's that's meaningful. That means that we're going to continue to see these kinds of films being made even if even if they're remakes or if they're originals or whatever else, we're going to start getting more of that. And and you know, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but watching I saw the Spider-Man film um, yesterday and that is a very diverse cast. Uh, mm-hmm. and that that was something that I was even just watching I was like, you know, all of these kids you've got white kids and you've got Asian Americans and you've got all of this kind of mixture of, of people um, actually being represented on screen. And that's really important. And it's nice to see that, that it isn't just a uniformly white cast. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's nice to see on screen look like what my life looks like off screen. Cause yeah, I'm white, but my neighbor, I live in a very Latino neighborhood. Most of my neighbors speak Spanish and I hate that I don't speak Spanish. I need to learn so that I can talk to my neighbors, you know, and, and I just came from a neighborhood that was very Asian. And so it's like, this is, this is my world. I don't live around a lot of white people and I love going to the movies and seeing a cast that looks like the people in my circle, you know? Yeah. I think it's great. So, um, let's move on from that. By the way, just congratulations Halle Bailey we're excited to see you at least I am Lauren doesn't like the Little Mermaid so <laughs> we we know you're not Halle Berry even though we really want you to be there <laughs> I mean is if you're gonna be confused with someone that's not a bad way to go <laughs> <laughs> true true <laughs> So, all right, um, let's talk about, a couple weeks ago, there was an article in the New York Times about the future of cinema, and I think that there were some really important things, and Lauren, I'm really glad that you threw this back on here, because we didn't get a chance to talk about it when it first was published, and so I'm glad that it's here now, because I think there's some really good stuff that I'd love to discuss, so um, why don't you talk a little bit about what the article was was doing what it was about okay so the the article i think came out uh, a couple weeks ago actually but it's sort of in the bigger part of this um this conversation that people are having about what is the future of cinema what is cinema going to look like in 10 years um and particularly dealing with the, the big the big one which is netflix but also all of the other streaming services disney getting into streaming um, Apple, Warner Brothers, you know, all of these different services that are developing and have developed over the, over the past 10 years, really. Um, and, and how people, th- and how people within the industry think that is going to move in what direction is that going to move the good sides, the bad sides. It's a very varied conversation and you've got, um, a, a 24 different people, um, including Ava DuVernay, Jason Bloom, Octavia Spencer, uh, Kamal Nanjiani, uh, Lena Waithe, J.J. Abrams, so all of these different people, um, all of whom have produced things for different audiences, all of whom have produced things, you know, someone like Ava DuVernay has produced a lot for streaming and specifically for Netflix, um, and how those, uh, how they see audiences developing how they see the business developing and some of it comes off a little bit like uh a little bit like a bunch of old people talking about you know well in my day we used to go to the movies but now kids don't go to the movies anymore um and so there's a little bit of of that hysteria i think that is baked into some of the responses but there's also a lot of particular people like ava duvernay and jessica chastain um talking about how it, it is changing and that's something that we kind of have to deal with, but that it, there are also a lot of good things about the rise of streaming and about um, what audiences are getting to experience and how films are changing. Yeah, uh, there were some really interesting quotes that I pulled out uh, specifically that, that I thought were really good. One of them, just getting into the theatricality, this is from Nancy Utley, who's one of the co-chairs for Fox Searchlight. And Fox Searchlight, of course, d- tends to pick up the more like independent stuff. They they acquire things at festivals. Um, 
they they do a lot more of the the smaller like not not necessarily smaller but lower budget things but they tend to get a lot of awards recognition like fox searchlight did um the shape of water uh year before last so anyway she said we have to be even more selective because if the audience perceives that it's something similar to what they have seen on a streaming service or a cable service it may not rise to the level of theatricality for them and i love that she is making that distinction like to us making these movies i'm speaking as her now uh we may think oh yeah this should be on a big screen but what is the audience looking at and if it's something like you know like there's this new surge of romantic comedies especially on netflix what is going to make a romantic comedy special enough that people are willing to pay to see it in the theater when they can see other similar things just at home mm-hmm. so i think that's a, a really interesting conversation to have this article i i liked it and there was a lot i think a lot of good stuff that was said i also didn't really see a lot of answers being given exactly there was a lot of well we need to change the way we think but how (laughs) i don't really know i i mean i think that some of them are not entirely certain how because as as several people pointed out Streaming has changed the way mm-hmm. that people watch movies and the way and the way that people watch television also. Um, you know, it's it's alter it's altering the paradigm and it's gonna continue to, you know, whether Netflix dies in the next ten years, something else is going to be in its place. You know, whether Amazon uh, continues to have Prime or anything like that, something is going to replace those even if they vanish. Mm-hmm. And so it is. It is this kind of seismic shift that probably, probably, really hasn't been seen since since television uh, came into came into being, became ubiquitous. Um, and and I th- I think that no one really knows what direction it's going to go in because you never because it, it's also dependent upon the economy. It's dependent upon what kind of films people are willing to watch. Um, all of that stuff. So everyone's everyone seems to be kind of floundering around, being like, "We're going to try to figure out how to sell things now." Uh, yeah. I did like Ava DuVernay sort of repeated what she has said numerous times, and I and I think that she's I think that she's right in a lot of ways. I think that she's right whether or not we want her to be right. <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, maybe she's right, even if she doesn't particularly want to be right, but she says that there is a privilege embedded in, in a theatrical release because I've had it, I've seen it, and I know what it is. Um, take the number of people who saw Selma, a Christmas release with an Oscar campaign about Dr. Martin Luther King. More than a quadruple amount of people saw, saw 13th, which is her Netflix documentary, about the prison industrial complex. If I'm telling these stories to reach a mass audience, then really nothing else matters. And so her point there is that there, you know, she's talked about um, what are basically cultural wastelands where you don't have movie theaters anymore, um, or you haven't had them for a long time. Famously, you could not see straight out of Compton in Compton. Right. And when you've got that, it, it's still it's still cheaper. I know that people don't want to believe it, but it is still cheaper to get a Netflix account and have access to all of those films than it is to go to one movie mm-hmm. per month. Right. Yep. And that's always that economically, that's always going to be the question, you know. And so you see movie theaters trying to get people in. You see the reclining chairs. You see, uh, you know, AMC. One of the reasons why I go to the movies a lot is because I have 
the AMC uh, Stubbs Pass. But again, I go to the movies a lot, so it winds up working out pretty much in my favor. At a certain point that, you know, they may change it, that it might not work out in my favor anymore. And it certainly wouldn't work out in my favor if my tendency was to only go to a movie once a month or once every two months. It would still be cheaper to just go and buy a ticket. Uh, but this is something that we're all going to have to deal with. And I think Ava DuVernay is right that there is privilege in the theatrical experience, particularly the way that it has been constructed now. And the problem is, because it's been constructed as something that has to do with privilege and availability, uh, it means that more and more movie theaters are beginning to shut down or are only showing a particular kind of film because that's where they can make their money. So it's this constant cycle that is just going to keep on getting worse and worse and streaming is going to continue to cut into that. Yeah, absolutely. I think though, I think the tendency is to make these broad assumptions about why people don't go anymore. I think cost is certainly a factor and the fact that like for four weeks, basically it's the same movies playing. Well, if I've already seen them all, why am I going to go see them again? If I, you know, if I didn't think they were amazing, um, and even if I did think out they were amazing, why would I pay to go see something again when it's going to be on HBO in a month or two? You know, like I totally get that way of thinking. But there's also the fact that sometimes going to the movies is very frustrating. The last three times that I went to my local AMC to see something on like a Thursday night, it's crowded, which is great. I love being in a crowded theater. But every single time the people seated directly next to me showed up late because they know about about how long to plan for the previews because there's like a half hour of previews before the movie. So now you got people walking in late, talking through the whole thing, being on their phones. It's very frustrating. It makes me think like, why am I here? You know, and that's me who is obsessed with being in a movie theater. People who don't really care that much. Why are they going to fork over the money to go and be frustrated for two hours? You know, like, I totally get that thinking, too. People have gotten very rude out in public and very, like, not thinking about the fact that other people exist. So, but there's also, um, there's also a quote that John Chu, who directed Crazy Rich Asians, said, which I also thought was interesting, too, because I think that we have this, I think there's kind of a lot of people have this idea that movie theaters are going to go away completely and everything's going to be streaming eventually. And I don't think that's true, either. Um, sorry. What he said was, if you had asked me two years ago where the film industry would be in 10 years, I might have had a different answer. But after what I've experienced with Crazy Rich Asians, seeing the audience show up, it sort of reinvigorated the idea of going to the movies. That social aspect of sharing a movie with friends and strangers and family, that's such a strong part of our tradition. The success we had would not have been possible any other way. So I think that it's not that the theatrical experience is dying, that movie theaters are dying. It's just that people need to have a reason to be willing to go out in public and share those experiences with strangers. Yeah. And and I think that that's a good point. You know, and talking about diversity, um, about the little mermaid, I think that that's maybe part of what Hollywood is beginning to understand that you've got to give people a reason to go to the movies. Uh, because there is so much available. And if you are compete, if you are competing with streaming, you, you've got to give them something, you know, uh, and giving, giving people being like, okay, you're so, we're so used to seeing white people on the screen. We're now going to show you not white people, like people that look like you, people that like you're saying, look like your neighborhood. Um, 
and that is going to be a, a communal experience at some level and that's really important getting those kinds of films that do draw people together some of the most fun that i have had in movie theaters have been like at horror films when people are really into it mm-hmm. and are really and they're screaming and they're jumping and they're giggling you know all of that stuff and that's the fun part of going to the movies. I, I remember going to see, um, I think it was Fast Five, one of the Fast and Furious films, uh, at a cinema in, um, in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn. And it was wild. Like people were shouting at the screen. People were, but it was one of those films where everyone was really engaged with it and everyone was having, um, having fun. And it, and so it wasn't just watching the movie in silence, but actually, Having a film, having a, the kind of film that encourages you to be engaged with it, and that encourages you to see it with an audience, uh, and that that is important. That was way more fun than like sitting down and just watching it on on Netflix. Uh, but yeah, you got to have a reason to do that, and I do think that theaters also need to begin enforcing the no fo- the no phones rules, mm-hmm. and maybe shutting the doors at a certain point in the film to just say like you know you can't you can't come in you can't decide that you're going to start climbing over people half an hour into the film because it's it's annoying and it's it interrupts the flow of the film. I went to see Annabelle a couple of weeks ago and there was a guy snoring next to me and another guy on his phone on the other side. And that kind of ruins the experience of a horror film sometimes when you've got like these moments of silence and I'm like and I just hear the breathing of the dude who has fallen asleep. That's the kind of thing that is annoying about a movie theater and and that movie theaters have to start enforcing at some level. You can't control everything, but they have to start enforcing at some level, some kind of audience control. Yeah, absolutely. The other night, my friends and I went and saw Avengers Endgame again. And luckily we had all seen it, but the guy sitting right next to our group, he was totally drunk. You could smell the alcohol on him. He was totally drunk. I'm pretty sure he passed out a couple of times and then woke up. He was playing with his keys. He has this giant ring of keys. He kept playing with it, so it's super loud. And then, you know, this was... And he kept making weird noises. I'm pretty sure he was spitting on the floor. Like, it was really gross and annoying. And it was like, I could get up and go tell someone, but they're probably going to just look at me like, well, what do you want me to do about it? So I just sat there until he finally got up and stumbled out and left, like three quarters of the way through the movie and I was like I really hope he's not getting in a car right now you know (laughs) but um but yeah I mean theaters have you have to be able to trust that theaters are going to do something and they have to they have to be making their rounds and taking care of those issues because it's not it's not acceptable especially with how expensive theaters have gotten now you know and yeah so um there was one final thing I I really liked that I wanted to read this is also Ava DuVernay and this is from a section where they were talking about the Oscars because that's been a big a big bone of of contention for a lot of people of what constitutes a Oscar movie you know and um, just that kind of old guard and new guard sort of way of thinking and she said the patterns are already going in the opposite direction and this is why you have people clinging to old systems that do not work anymore I've been in some of these rooms, I've read some of the stuff that people are saying, and I say you are contributing to your own destruction. When you say that you care about the future of this medium, this legacy, then you have to think about what happens next. And I just don't think enough people are doing that. So, 
yeah, I think people are just clinging to the way it's always been done. They are so tied and so married to this idea of like, you have to see this movie on the big screen or that movie doesn't count if it's, if you're watching it on your phone. And we can't think that way anymore. We have to think about the future. This isn't 1940. People don't watch movies the same way. And yeah. as much as I will go to the movie theaters until there are no movie theaters anymore, a lot of younger people just don't care. And those are the ones that are going to be making decisions in a few years and, and making these choices. And we have to get ready for it. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Uh, not really. I, I think that I think that everyone who spoke in that article, like, and, and most of it was excerpts. Uh, I think there mm-hmm. are full interviews with a lot of them elsewhere. Um, I think they all, many of them had good points. I do wish that we kind of got away from this. There's, like I say, this, this sense of hysteria that there's going to be some kind of a cinematic apocalypse or something right. like that. It's cinema has been changing ever since it was created. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, film became, you know, look, look at the, look at the switch from the Nickelodeons to, you know, actual feature films. Look at the switch from silent movies to talkies, the switch from talkies to, uh, you know, the increase in the use of, of color and then technicolor and then blockbusters and all of that, that sequence of film history, it changes rapidly. It changes suddenly. Sometimes the Hollywood studio system fell apart uh, and then was kind of cobbled back together in a completely different way. So this is all, this has always been the nature of the medium and anyone who really looks at the full spectrum of film history, you're going to recognize that. And that's really where, what we're in right now. I'm excited. I've been excited about, you know, the way the film has been going because, you know, the, the overlap between streaming and television and what film, what is considered to be film is getting smaller and smaller. And I like that. I think that that's really exciting. That presents a lot of opportunity. And I, we're seeing some great art being made. And I think that that's something that we're going to, we're going to continue to see. Mm-hmm. This is why when people tell me they don't watch television, <clears throat> Kristen Lopez, uh, I just sit there and go, you're missing out on so many amazing things. I mean, there's stuff that's happening in television that's so much better than any movie this year. You know, like, I would love to give When They See Us an Oscar. And it's not eligible because it's considered television. So... Yeah, and those episodes I, I, are almost feature, feature length. Yeah. I mean, I think the first episode is like 80 minutes. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and and so it's like there's just so much great, great stuff. And the idea that because it's not something you would traditionally watch in a movie theater, it doesn't count as much. That idea is finally going out the window, and I'm so glad. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's talk about, um, let's see. Well, we let's let's ask a question. We got a listener question. Uh, this is from Keith Derrick, at KH Derrick. Excluding Eddie from Frasier because he is obviously the best, all others compete for second. Uh, <clears throat> agree to disagree there, Keith. Um, who are your favorite showbiz animals? <laughs> Eddie is pretty great, but uh, there are some other ones I like, too. Uh, Lauren, what are some of your favorite showbiz animals? The first one that came to mind was Asta from uh, from the Thin Man series. This is way back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. and and that that's a little dog. I actually I 
honestly, for the life of me, I cannot remember what his real name is, but that's a little dog that had a, quite a long career and a very lucrative career. I mean, he was Asta in, I think, most of the Thin Man movies. He shows up in The Awful Truth, uh, and he's just like, I mean, if, if there was an Eddie before Eddie, it was, it was Asta. <laughs> yes, definitely. In fact, I don't know if Eddie would have been as cool if there hadn't been Asta first. <laughs> um... Man, there are a lot that I love. I love a lot of non-dog animals, too. Like, the monkey in Pirates of the Caribbean, I think, is great. Yeah. Um, he's so cute. Uh, I love Flipper. Um, <laughs> that bear that used to be in, like, so many movies. Bart the Bear, I think, was his name. Um, <laughs> he was in, like, a bunch of really random stuff. Like, there's lots of great animals in movies. And TV. I'm trying to think of some other ones right now. Oh, my black, mind is going blank. Black Philip in The Witch. Like, that goat, that was yes. a performing goat, and apparently he hated the guy who played the father, and would, like, <laughs> actually, like, stalk him, essentially, and it was like, so, Black Philip, we, we love you, Black nice. Philip. <laughs> um, I love Norman from City Slickers, um, which is also the, dir- the feature film debut of one Jake Gyllenhaal, by the way, he was, like, nine years old. Um, yeah, there's lots of great animals. Uh, <laughs> Salem from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh, the yeah. new one. That yes. is not a puppet? <laughs> yes, the one that's an actual, yeah, I guess it's not Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I love that cat. It's beautiful. So, yeah. All right. Fun question. We can always talk about movie animals, right? <laughs> um, let's see. Let's talk a little bit about, this is a fun topic that came up earlier this week, too, uh, and I know you have a lot of thoughts on this, Lauren. Is horror a male-centric genre? No. All right. That's Correct. It. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that this question even came up. I don't know why people think that it is. I mean, the, initially, the, the place that I saw the question was actually talking about horror in general. So it wasn't just film, but also uh, literature and, um, I mean, you know, it, horror pops up in, in most genres, painting. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I do. And one of, one of the things, I, I think one of the reasons why we tend to associate horror with men uh, is because we tend to think primarily about horror in terms of the 1970s and the 1980s and after, which is when you've got the rise of the slasher film, um, you have a lot more focus on particularly male killers uh, and, you know, topless women and stuff like that. So you have also got a lot of the exploitation films. And so it it became almost this male centric genre. One of the things that I reacted to just in seeing this question was, um, when I when I was in film school, one of the things that we studied was the way that horror uses difference. And by difference, we mean pretty much anyone who is not a cisgendered white male. Um, so there's a lot of uh, theory about queer horror, about um, feminist horror, about the way that horror interacts with gender and with race and with sexuality and with disability and with pretty much anything that is an, a, cis, a, a straight cisgendered white male. Uh, and because white masculinity has for a very long time been the mainstream, 
there tends to there's this tendency to then sort of say all of the difference is put into the monster. So it's the monster. You know, we we talk about the monstrous feminine, the monstrous mother. Um, uh, movies like Candyman, which are about basically a black ghost taking vengeance. Um, so it's it's the return of the repressed uh, has been this concept in horror for a very long time and. One of the things that a lot of people point out is that very often the monsters, as a result of this, the monsters actually become more and more sympathetic. When you're talking about monsters that are return of the repressed, that are about the suppression of women or the suppression of, um, of black people in America or the suppression of the working classes, things like that, the monsters, you begin to understand why the monsters are both terrifying because they're a threat to mainstream, to the white masculine mainstream, but also because they represent pretty much everybody else that is very rarely represented on screen. And so you get this weird kind of dichotomy going on where you have a great, um, you have this monster that is representative of, you know, queerness, of homosexuality, who is at once the villain, the, the thing that has to be put away at some level, but also is expressive of all of this anger and pain and violence that has been done to homosexuals in in the history of the United States or in the history of whatever nation you're talking about. So it's this interesting kind of push and pull that goes on. Uh, but very often the fun of horror films is that identity with the monster. And so I, I tend to be like, no, horror is much more feminine and queer and non-male centric than we tend to give it credit for. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I get excited about this. <laughs> No, I'm no, I love it and I think it's a really important topic. I honestly don't have anything else to add because I think that you've really nailed it and I think that what I love about horror is the fact that there's I mean just like any genre, you really can have so many different facets and subgenres and so many different um, different styles and so many different voices creating it. And I I honestly I feel like horror is one of the most diverse genres that we have in terms of who's making it in terms of who, who those stories are about and i love it just the other day i was watching xx i think it's on netflix have you ever seen that it's i haven't yeah it's been okay. on my list for a long time i just haven't seen it yet yeah it's an anthology for those who aren't aware um and there are four four short films rolled up into one and each one is directed by a different female director and, like, you've got Karin Kasama, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of who else, but, um, but each one is a very different type of movie. You've got a, a, a monster film in there, you've got, like, this drama, you've got just some very interesting, they're all very different types of horror stories, but they're all really fascinating to watch, and especially to watch them in, in chunks like that, in these small, you know, like, 30-ish, 20-30 minute movies and I just kept thinking about how how I love seeing horror films from such different voices and different perspectives and how women make horror films so much differently than men do and I think because it tends to be produced for such low budget it doesn't cost a lot of money typically to make these types of movies and they can reach a pretty interesting audience not necessarily like you know, horror movies aren't going to make a billion dollars usually, but, or ever, but, um, 
but they reach certain audiences and they tap into that and i i just i, I think it's so fascinating so yeah i love horror movies yeah. they're great watch xx it's fantastic it's very intriguing uh all right anything else all right no. um we got another question this is from nanina gilder i don't know i think maybe we should kind of hold off on this one um, she was asking about Ida Lupino, whose films have been added to the Criterion channel. She says, with Ida Lupino getting added to Criterion channel, I'd love for you to talk about her of as director. Also, since I watched Never Fear, I've been really wondering about Kristen's feelings about its portrayal of disability. So I think we should hold off on that until Kristen <laughs> comes back. And also until I have the chance to actually watch all of the films, because I've only watched one of them. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, everybody... Yeah, I think that'll be a great... Go and watch Ida Lupino's filmography, most of which is now on Criterion Channel. Like, just do it. She's great. Yeah. Check it out. We'll have an awesome discussion in August about it. Yeah, I think that'll be fantastic. Thank you, though, for the question, Anita. All right. Let's see. Did you see the trailer for Knives Out this week? I did see the trailer for Knives Out this week. I just tossed that on there because it looks like fun and it is exactly the sort of thing that I want to see. So it's a whodunit. I completely agree. <laughs> and the fact that the fact that there was already like within minutes a gif of Chris Evans just going, eat shit, eat shit, <laughs> eat shit, definitely eat shit. Like <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> it looks like so much fun. It's Ryan Johnson. It's a Ryan Johnson whodunit, like all of his movies pretty much are. And it stars Christopher Plummer, Don Johnson, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, Catherine Langford, Tony Collette, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Ana de Armas. Like, there's a ton of people mm -hmm. in this movie, and I am so excited. If you haven't watched the trailer, go watch the trailer, because it looks like a whole lot of fun. I'm enjoying the return of the, like, star-studded uh, uh, murder mystery movie. I'm very pleased by this. Yeah, it felt like, watching the trailer felt like a, like a modern-ish version of Clue, and I was very excited yeah. about that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that'll be out November 27th. And it's funny because with that release date a bunch of people instantly went "Ooh, this is gonna be up for oscars so i was like i think this is just gonna be a fun movie that people want to see so i don't know we'll see yes yeah, i doubt it's gonna be oscars <laughs> yeah no this doesn't look like an oscar movie but it looks like a really fun movie and i can't wait and i will be there so all right but speaking of some stuff that did come out in the last week or two that we have seen let's start with annabelle comes home just because that one came out first and uh lauren what are your thoughts on annabelle comes home i just wanted to talk about this because i enjoy the crap out of the conjuring universe films including the nun <laughs> everyone is so mean about the nun i love the nun um and that that being said i think we all acknowledge that the annabelle films are among the the lesser of the conjuring universe films uh but this one i really enjoyed and I, I liked the fact that what you basically got are three teenagers in a house being haunted by pretty much all of the evil that is contained in the Warrens' uh, cabinet of evil uh, as a result of, of one of them opening up the, the cabinet and letting Annabelle free. And I, I, I liked that. I liked the fact that there was, there was a lot of tension. It was a lot of fun. 
Um, you had all these great monsters and ghosts running around, but none of them, there were some predictable things, but some of them were very creepy, like the, the television that shows oh, yeah. what is going to happen, which I just thought was a great technique. And I'm like, I want to know where that TV comes from. Like, where, what's the story behind that one? I don't think that that's popped up actually in the Conjuring universe yet, or if it has, I missed it. Um, uh, yeah, just just all of those. You you just basically got the kind of babysitter, uh, typical babysitter sort of slasher narrative, but with the Conjuring ghosts and uh, and within the Conjuring universe and Annabelle like wreaking havoc on these poor girls and them trying to get her back in the cabinet. And it, it was just a lot of fun. What I loved about this was the girl who initially lets her out. First of all, it's an accident. Second of all, her motives are not just like, oh, there's a whole bunch of cool shit. Let's see what it does. She has really pure motives that are that stem from some personal tragedy and heartbreak. And I, I like that because, not that I like people suffering, but just because, you know, there's so many movies of people doing really stupid shit just because they're stupid. And this was like, she was a misguided teenager who really thought she could get some answers in this particular way, didn't know any other way to get them. And so she went trying to, trying to solve something. And so I liked that initial motive. And I thought that the movie itself was really clever in a lot of ways um had some really funny moments that were not expected but also had some genuine like I get I get annoyed at jump scares because I don't like to be startled it's not that they scare me it's just that I don't like to be startled I don't like that feeling and so when a movie relies on those too much I tend to really just be like why am I watching this but the ones that happen in Annabelle Comes Home I felt were I don't know. There was something more to them, and I I enjoyed, I enjoyed the experience of watching this movie more than I typically would with a movie like that. So, yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun too. I completely agree with you. It's definitely the best of the Annabelle movies. Uh, it's definitely better than the Nun. Um, sorry, the other Annabelle movies. Um, yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought McKenna Grace was was perfect. I thought she was really sweet. I think the two teenage girls um, were well cast as well. So, And it was fun to see uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga back in the story too. And also yeah. like, like you were mentioning, like, what's the story with that TV? What's I still want to know what the story is with that monkey, you know? Like, <laughs> it's so fun to, to think like, oh, this totally just opened up a whole new world of sequel possibilities and spinoff movies. And I'm excited to see what they come up with next. Exactly. I like that. I like that you've got, you could basically just go into that that room and be like okay we're now going to tell the story of the bride we're now going to tell the story of you know the television Mm -hmm. um and you and it doesn't have so it doesn't have to be annabelle or anything like that so they they don't have to make up anything new you've got all of that sort of set up and that's exciting and it's fun uh you know, none of these films are like the greatest horror movie ever made or anything like that, but they are loads of fun and they're, they're just enjoyable to sit with. And yeah. I, that's what I like about them. I'm honestly surprised they haven't already announced the fairy man movie is coming. Cause I'm sure that's going to be the next one after crooked man. <laughs> so yeah, crooked man is from conjuring two and they have announced that one. I yeah. believe it comes out next year. 
So, yeah, it will not surprise me in the least if the ferryman is introduced next after. Or the bride. The bride would be awesome, too, I agree. I feel like the bride is more, I don't know, it's got more possibilities. The, fa- the ferryman sort of just, it's just a story. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a mythology. Yeah, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff they could do with it still. That's the bride true. would be really good. Yeah. There's, oh, it's exciting because there's so much stuff they can do, so... I'm 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 happy about it. Um, let's see. We had Spider-Man: Far From Home. Did you see that this week? I did. I saw that yesterday. Okay. Yeah, I saw it Tuesday next to a very talkative mom and son. It was super fun. And I <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the movie. I didn't like it as much as Spider-Man: Homecoming, but I thought it was I thought it was good. Um, it's. <laughs> This one feels weird for me to talk about because I'm not, like, glowing with praise about it, so it sounds like I didn't like it, but I actually did. I thought it was fun. I thought it was very predictable, though. Um, I saw a lot of stuff coming a mile away, and I just, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of Jake Gyllenhaal either, so seeing him in it, I was like, eh, alright. He didn't do much for me, and his character was just kind of fine but I really like the the when it's and I felt the same way with homecoming too when it's a like a teenage a little bit teen drama romantic comedy ish when it's focused on the high school stuff I actually really think it's it's interesting and good in ways that a lot of the other Marvel movies aren't um, because I think it really taps into some of that anxiety and and teenage angst in a good way and becomes a lot of fun and the whole you know like they're going on this class trip and the whole like all the dynamics of who sits where and who has a crush on who and stuff I I really enjoyed watching that I thought it was really funny um but when it gets to the actual avenging part of it there were some things that just really (laughs) I didn't think it worked nearly as well as uh homecoming nearly as well as a lot of the other avenger movies so I'm 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 mixed on this. I definitely lean positive, but I'm mixed on it. What did you think? Uh, I think I'm kind of in the same place. That I, I agree with you. I, in in many ways, the the teenage melodrama stuff is more entertaining than the like. Now we're going to shoot webs and fight bad guys. Uh, that being said, I liked the shooting webs and fighting bad guys, but it it was like it was almost as though there were two different movies going on. Mm-hmm. Um, that one of them was was a Spider Man movie, and that one of them was really just this sort of fun, cute, teenage romantic comedy. Both of which were fine, but d- they had difficulty putting them together. Yeah, and I think Homecoming did a much better job of marrying the two. Yeah, and some of some of it is, I, I think, a little bit that that Homecoming is is kind of an origin story still. Yeah, that's true. Um, whereas this is this is trying to deal with the partially to deal with the aftermath of Endgame and everything that has happened. So you've got that, and but then you've also got like Peter Parker trying to be a, a teenage boy, which is what he is. And throughout the entire movie, I was like, dear God, leave him alone. <laughs> like he is just a che- a teenage boy. You know, he's yes, he has superpowers, but he's also got a crush on a girl. Like, do not give him more things to have to deal with. This poor kid, you know, he's not a grown up. Uh, and and it was odd. I did. I don't. I'm not a big fan of Jake Gyllenhaal to begin with. I did like 
what they did with his character, although I agree with you that it was very predictable. Um, but I liked some of the ideas behind it. And I wish, in some ways, I wish that they had taken the time to develop that part of it a little bit more. It's, it is this conflict between the teenage melodrama stuff and the Marvel stuff, because there's that sense that he needs more time to develop as a figure. Mm-hmm. But if you give him more time, you're going to stretch this film and don't cut anything else out. You're going to stretch this film into two and a half to three hours, which it can't be like, it would just be too much. Yeah. Um, and so it's this weird kind of feeling where you're like, we've got this really interesting character that deserves more time to become what he is basically. And yet you've all, and yet you're kind of giving him short shrift. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was a very entertaining two hours. Um, I didn't regret going to see it. But I'm not... I like all of the actors that are in it, uh, but I'm not, like, in love with it. Yeah. I will say there was some action in this that was really spectacularly done. Like, there's a fight sequence uh, toward the end of the movie where it was, like... I was getting confused watching things happen, but it also just looked really freaking cool. So it was like, I'm, I'm into this, you know? I mean, there's definitely mm-hmm. a lot of good stuff to, to see and look at. I just wish they would stop destroying monuments in movies in general. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Tower of London. Anyway. <laughs> Constantly being destroyed. I know. Like if it's at least it wasn't the Eiffel Tower this time, I guess, but <laughs> but yeah. Uh all right. So let's see. We have a little bit more time. Do you want to chat about Stranger Things three? I know you had some opinions about it. I definitely had some opinions about it. Well, why don't you go ahead and tell me your opinions and I'll <laughs> tell you mine. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean I know that you have made comments on about some of the nostalgia and the, the male-centric quality of it. Um, I will say, I love Stranger Things. I've loved I've loved it since the beginning. I agree with a lot of people that season two is definitely not as strong. I think season three is really, really uh, fun. It's got some really good stuff. 19, it takes place in 1985, the summer of 1985, which is the first year that I really clearly remember. Like... My memories of other parts of the 80s are there, but 1985 is the first the first year where I'm like, everything that comes up in this show, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that, or oh, that was so cool. I totally saw Back to the Future like four times in the theater, you know, it's like all these things, and the malls, and how big a deal those were, and they felt like so important and stuff, and so the nostalgia aspect of it, it's like, I feel like they nailed it, because I felt like I was just watching my childhood unfold on screen, which was really fun, and the story itself, um, I, I do think that there are things that become very predictable, especially if you remember the 80s, or have watched a lot of movies and TV set in the 80s, but I love, especially what I loved in season three was the relationships between the characters and how much those have grown and characters who didn't used to really, they kind of just existed for, for small reasons and now they're becoming fully fledged characters. Uh, one in particular that I was excited about was Erica Sinclair, who is Lucas's younger sister, who in previous seasons has just been there occasionally for like a quippy one-liner. 
but actually has a part in the story this time and I think she's hilarious and I love her I love seeing the relationship grow between Max and Elle I love seeing these these things um, the way that they're developing so I I think it's a really fun show I liked the central mystery of it Um, I think it's really it's fun to the way that they've recaptured that like red scare things I remember having drills when I was in elementary school like in case the Russians dropped in Red Dawn style you know and so to capture those those feelings and that anxiety that existed I think is is pretty genius so uh again it's you know just like seasons one and two it's not a perfect show but I think it's a lot of fun and I I will definitely be watching season four whenever that comes around too okay uh, so I, I will say that I like Stranger Things a lot. I particularly liked the first season. I think one of the things that they, I think they did very well in the first season was that they balanced the nostalgia element of it with a, a, a unique story. And, and I liked that. I liked the mystery to it. One of the issues that you're always going to run into when you've got, you know, when you've got sequels basically to, to that original story is, okay, now we have to do something different. Uh, one of the things I liked about season two is that it actually did deal with the trauma uh, that people were experiencing and of like coming out of this and coming back from this and still having these, these issues that are some of which are weighing on very young children. And I, I liked that and I liked those elements to it, but it was beginning to wobble a little bit in season two. I think that season three is very wobbly and by that, I mean, I think that it's well done. It's still very well acted. Um, it's still entertaining. Like, I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm like, this is fun. I'm enjoying myself for, you know, whatever the 50 minutes that an episode lasts. But I'm not really compelled by it. Uh, I do have an issue with how male it is. And by that, I mean a lot of the perspective that is being taken is a very it's an almost but my childhood perspective. And I feel like that that has become heightened, particularly now. And some of that has to do with the introduction of more female characters and more important female characters. But there's still this this centrism um, on the boys and about the boys' experience and, um, and the memory, you know, the memories of the 1980s. That being said, I was born in 1986. So... I do not remember the 80s at all. The first thing that I remember is like the 90s. Uh, and and so my my childhood experience really is not is obviously not 1986. It's it's 1996. It's 1995. So if this show were set in that period, I think maybe I would have a different relationship to it. Um, simply because of the things that you're talking about of like, oh, I remember that, or, oh, I remember seeing that, you know, I remember those, you know, Orange Julius Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, the growth of the mall, uh, Mm -hmm. which was already grown by the time I I was old enough to really appreciate it and then began dying. Right. Um. You killed the mall, Sorin. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, millennials killed the malls. No, the internet (laughs) killed the malls. Like, that's really what went on. Oh yeah, uh, So, so I kind of I appreciate that that it is appealing to to that to a very different generation from mine, and so as a result, I'm kind of like eh, I don't have the same connection to it. Um, so I'm liking it. I f- I do feel like they're retreading themselves again, 
and they're there's not really doing anything truly different or unique with with the upside down or with the Russians or, or any of that stuff. I almost wish that that they rather than continuously going back to the upside down things, they actually did like now we're going to have a totally separate adventure that doesn't have anything to do with that. But it's just like, oh, these crazy things keep on happening to these kids. I would prefer that in a lot of ways than trying to sort of tie all of these different series together. Cause I, I think that it's beginning to weaken a lot. Uh, and, and if they're going to go on and do a four or a five or a six, they're going to have to find something else to do. So that was my feeling about it. Yeah. Well, and, and thank you for sharing that. Cause, cause when I saw some of your tweets, I kept thinking, yeah, but you don't remember this like I do. And so it makes perfect sense <laughs> that our experiences watching this would be completely vastly different because, yeah. um, like, I mean, when I was a kid, most of the pop culture stuff was, you know, like what I watched partly because of who I was around was G.I. Joe, the Transformers. I didn't get into My Little Pony and stuff, you know, that that much. And so so it's and I think that was just the case for a lot of girls. I mean, in now kids growing up, like we were talking about earlier, there's so much diversity of of entertainment, of toys, of games, of all this kind of stuff. And when I was a kid, I mean, everything was, was, it was a very male dominated culture still. And Mm -hmm. so that's what my memories are. And I don't have, I don't personally have a problem with that. One of the things I was thinking while I was watching season three was there were certain aspects of it where I felt like I was not watching a nostalgic show about kids in the eighties. I felt like I was watching a show from the eighties sometimes. And maybe that's why I just was totally into it. Maybe. I don't know. It's a different generation, man. Very much. <laughs> but I'm glad you didn't hate it. <laughs> that makes me happy. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. What's on tap for this week? You got anything going on? I might try to go see Midsummer. Maybe. Oh, fun. <laughs> I actually am very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, God. It's two, it it's two and a half hours. And it feels like it's four and a half hours. Not gonna lie. There were times oh I was well, just I'll like, try. why is this not over yet? <laughs> so yeah. If you see it, let me know what you think. But you also have Fantasia Fest I coming will. up too, don't you? Yes, we've got Fantasia Fest coming up. That starts on uh, July 11th. And so we're, there's going to be some interesting stuff going up on the website within the next the next couple of weeks. So watch out for that. It's always an interesting festival. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I love your coverage of Fantasia Fest because I always find new stuff to look forward to. So I'm excited. Uh, I'm going to be going to Comic-Con the week after next. And I just found out there's going to be a Hall H presentation of Top Gun Maverick, and um, <laughs> that means that... Um, oh, no! He's he's going to be there, Lauren, and I'm a little bit freaking out about it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dear. I, I, don't, I honestly oh, don't no. know if I can handle it. <laughs> it's going to be a restraining order, you know? Yeah. I was talking to someone yesterday who was just like, you have to go up and ask a question at the microphone. I was like, I'm pretty sure the Scientologists have me on a list. I'm not going to get anywhere near him. I'm positive. (laughs) But yeah, that's the thing that's going to be happening. So Um, yeah, I also have the Lion King this week, so we'll see how that goes. Hopefully it's fine. 
I'd, at this point, I'd be fine with fine. <laughs> so so anyway. we're so excited about these Disney live action. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. Well, this one in particular, it's like, why do I just want to see a movie where Mufasa dies again and now it looks more real? Yeah. No, thank you. I'm good. But, oh well. I like Donald Glover. So hopefully that'll be good. All right. We're going to close things up now. Uh, follow us on all the places. You can find our podcast, uh, all the places that you find podcasts. I, I guess iTunes doesn't exist anymore. Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcatcher is a thing, Stitcher, SoundCloud, lots of places. It's all fun. CitizenDamePod. Wait. Is it dot .podbean.com or podbean.citizendame.com? I don't know. I didn't write that down. But you can find us on Twitter and get links to it. That's at CitizenDamePod. Instagram is also at CitizenDamePod. And our email is CitizenDamePod at gmail.com. You can find our website where we talk about Fantasia Fest and our weekly fives and thirst traps and feminist Fridays and all kinds of fun stuff. That's CitizenDamePod.com. Facebook is Facebook.com slash CitizenDame. Um, we have our Patreon. If you want to give us a little bit of your monies, that's patreon.com slash citizen name. And we have a Ko-Fi account. If you just want to throw us a couple bucks once in a while, you don't want to make a commitment. That's okay. We understand. That's ko, K-O dot, or no, hyphen, K-O hyphen fi, F-I dot com slash citizen name. Uh, and Lauren, where are you on the interwebs? I am at LH business. And I am at Karen M. Peterson. Kristen is at journeys underscore film. So you can find all of us all over the place. Send us nice notes. We don't want to hear from you if you're mean. Because that's, well, sometimes it's fun. But only if it's productive. Anyway. <laughs> uh, that's going to finish things up. So thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. This is the route you're going to take. Then we just wait till the last delivery goes out tonight. Then you knock out the grate, jump down, open the door. Then you find out what's in those boxes? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And you say this guard is armed? Yes, but he won't be there. And booby traps? Booby traps? Lasers, spikes in the wall? Spikes. What? You know what this half-baked plan of yours sounds like to me? Child endangerment. We'll be in radio contact with you the whole time. Uh-uh. No Child endangerment. Erica? Uh, we think these Russians want to do harm to our country. Great harm. Don't you love your country? You can't spell America without Erica. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oddly, that's, uh, totally true. So, so, don't do this for us. Do it for your country. Do it for your fellow man. Do this for America. Erica. I just got the chills. Oh yeah, from this float, not your speech. You know what I love most about this country? Capitalism.